you have your Bibles, take those out. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-10 through 10 this morning. As you're turning there, uh, maybe you've had an experience similar uh, to experiences that I've had. You're talking to somebody who's nominally spiritual, has some interest in spiritual things, spiritual ideas, maybe has some concept of God, wouldn't consider themselves to be a Christian, but would consider themselves spiritual, uh, and, and you're talking about God. The, the idea of God, the character of God, the nature of God comes up, and, and maybe you, like me, have had somebody say to you something along these lines, well, I like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. You had that happen to you? Well, I like to think of God as really, really wrathful. I like to think of God as a consuming fire, like the Bible calls him. Typically, when somebody says, I like to think of God as dot, 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 and you're talking to somebody, maybe not a spiritual interest, spiritual background, it usually has to do with something about the love of God. God is very loving. God is very kind. God is very gracious. God is very nice. Uh, God is very soft. It's usually some sort of God exists to make me happy and make my life better and make the, the things in my life go really, really well. It's interesting because sometimes when I listen to those people uh, and somebody says, I like to think of God as, you know, this is like their concept of God is going to come at us, right? It's probably not going to be like a full-orbed theology proper understanding of the God of the Bible. It's usually going to be like, man, if I could create God in my image, I would do it this way, right? And it usually has something to do with God being nice, kind, loving, caring, gentle. You're like, are we talking about God or are we talking about Aladdin and the genie, right? Are we talking about God or are we talking about Santa, are we talking about God or are we talking about like my grandpa who is just like so nice and kind and gives me everything that I want? And usually that's the conception of God that if somebody in a secular mindset and culture has a conception or an idea of God and it's I like to think of God as dot dot dot, it's usually something like that. Interestingly though, oftentimes when you talk to Christian people, people who go to church, read their Bibles and things like that, you sometimes can get some of the same things. Here's the problem with defining God with the I like to think of God as. I don't get to define God. You don't get to define God. Our culture doesn't get to define God. You know who gets to define God? God gets to define God. And God has defined and revealed himself to us where? In his word. So when I want to hear and know and understand and think about God, and I want to, like a real accurate conception and understanding of who God is, where do I go? I, I don't go to the internet, right? I don't go to like secular people who I like to think of God as, you know, really kind and loving and gives me whatever I want. I go to God's word. I go to the scriptures. God gets to define who God is. God has revealed himself as he is to us in his word. And so when we want to know who God is, we go to the scriptures. And fortunately, the scriptures tell us all that God wants us to know about who he is, right? We might not know everything there is to know about God, but in the scriptures, we have everything that God wants and needs us to know about him. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 is one of those key foundational, like important understandings for us to know who is God? What is God like? It uses these words. It says, God is light. And then he's going to talk about what that means and what that looks like. And we're going to dig into this morning. When the scriptures say that God is light, what does that mean? When the scriptures say God is light, that's a, that's a truth about God from the Bible. That's not just, I like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. And so we're going to talk about that. But then every single time that the Bible tells us what God is like, it means that there are ramifications for our lives. If God is holy, there are ramifications. If God is loving, there are ramifications. If God is, as Hebrew says, a consuming fire, there are ramifications. If God is just, there are ramifications. All of the things that Scripture tells us about God like, mean something to our lives, right? So John chapter 1, verse 5 is going to tell us something about God. And then verse 6 and following is going to tell us the ramifications for that in our lives. We'll dig into it this morning and start off right there in verse 5. This is the message. We have heard, John says, and we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. In verses 1 through 4, as we looked at last week, John laid the foundation. And John said, we have the right to talk about Jesus because we've been there. We've spent time with him. We, taught, we heard him. We saw him. We, held, uh, we ate with him. 
we did all kinds of things with him. And he says, we experience Jesus and we have the right to talk about who Jesus is. Now he says, this is the message. This is part of what Jesus told us. And now it's our job to proclaim to you. And the very first word that he says, we proclaim to you that God. And I want to stop right there this morning for a second and say this. That the Bible, that the Christian faith, that the message, all of those things starts with God. That a Christian worldview and a godly understanding of how we view the world starts with God. When John says, this is the message that we have heard and that we proclaim to you, he starts with God. One of the reasons that that is so important that when we come to the Bible, we come to the Bible, we start by looking for God. When we look at our world, we start by looking at God. When we come to a Christian worldview, we start with God. You know who we don't start with? Ourselves. You see, that's a fundamental difference between the person that says, well, I like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. That's usually in some way, like I'm thinking of a self-serving way that God can serve me. When I come to the Bible and I look for the God of the Bible and understand God from how he's revealed himself in his word, I understand that it starts with him, not me. And that keeps me from making this whole book all about me. Did you know that the Bible is not all about us? That it's all about God? It's all about him revealing himself to us. That's what his word is about. That's what his word is for. That he reveals himself in his word to us. Uh Uh-oh. I'll get it. So he says, God is light. I'm going to unpack that for a couple, just for a minute. God is light. This is a statement about the character, nature, essence of God. Okay? It's a word picture. He's using it metaphorically. We believe, actually, if you read the book of Revelation, it says uh, that, that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no need for a sun or moon. There will be no need for light because the glory of God is going to light up the place. But when he talks about God as light here, he's using this as a picture, and it's, it's a picture to talk about the character and nature of God. So as we hear the words, God is light, I want you to hear the holiness of God, okay? the purity of God, the moral perfection of God, the goodness of God. When they thought of light in that day, they didn't have a switch, right? They, didn't, they couldn't walk over and just like, click. They didn't have a flashlight app on their phone. Light was something that brought life to them. Light was something that was vital and important to them. He says, God is light. He's talking about purity and moral perfection. I want to point out as well that there's another thing that, that John in 1 John says that God is. And this is the verse, you guys. This is the verse that even if you don't go to church, you know this verse. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, you love this verse. You don't even know you love the Bible and you love this verse. You've seen this verse on bumper stickers. You've seen this verse outside of some churches. You've seen this verse all over the place. What does John say in John chapter 3 about God? It's not God is light, it's what? He says in John chapter, I'm sorry, John chapter 4, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is, oh, weak. Because God is, guys, that's the message about God everywhere in the world today. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be spiritual. You don't have to be any of those things. But you will pull out God is love because everybody loves love. Everybody loves to be loved. Everybody loves to feel loved. Everybody loves to experience love. And if God is love, then God just loves everybody. Everybody's welcomed. Everybody's accepted. Everybody can do whatever they want. Everybody can feel however however they want. You can love however you want. You can identify however you want. Because, guys, God is love. Isn't that amazing? That's the totality of the message that many people are preaching and embracing about God today because it sounds so nice is it true is god love yes but before it says god is love in john god is what god is light because the holiness of god matters and the love of god is exercised in light of the holiness of god People start talking about, well, God is love, and he would never judge, and he would never condemn, and God is love, and so I can live however I want, and God just loves and embraces, and aren't we all happy? That's a truncated view and understanding of God. That's, that, that is not an unbiblical view, but it is a, a, a weak view, a truncated view of God. He says that God is light before he says that God is love. So the next time someone comes to you and is like, well, God is love, and so I can identify however I want, I can do whatever I want, and God wouldn't judge me. You say, well, hang on, let's back up a couple chapters. 
right? Because God is light. God's love must always be understood in light of God's holiness. And here's why this is so important. Not only is this, this is the character, nature, and this is who God is. He's morally perfect. That God is holy, that he is righteous, that he is just, that he is good. Because that lays the foundation for everything. And here's one of the implications. Because God is light, God is entitled to set the moral standard. Church, God is entitled to set the moral standard. We live in a more morally relativistic, morally pluralistic society, right? You can believe whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. You can act however you want. As long as you don't tell me I'm wrong and I don't tell you you're wrong, then we're all good. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The implication, God gets to set the moral standard. He defines the standard. He defines it in his word. So when I open the scriptures and it tells me how I'm supposed to live before I'm married, it tells me how I'm supposed to live while I'm married, it tells me how to do finances and do relationships, it tells me about my identity, it tells me about all those things. Guess what? That's God's truth. God is light. Light brings life. Light signifies purity and holiness and righteousness and all those things. There's something else that light does. Light reveals stuff, doesn't it? Right? You open the garage door, dark, you flip on the light, you see scurrying. Like light just revealed we got a problem, right? You go to your kid's room, you flip on the light, you scream and jump back. Light reveals things. Light reveals things so we can see them and we can judge like that's good or that's not good. God is light. God is entitled not only to set the moral standard, but to judge by that moral standard. To judge everything by the standard that only he achieves. God is light. It says, in him is no darkness at all. End of verse 5. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And John is actually using language intentionally to set up one of the great dualities in all the Bible. Old Testament or New Testament. The idea of light and darkness is a, one of the great dualities in all the Bible. And you can go to the Old Testament, you can read about light and darkness and what it signifies. And in the New Testament, and, and John and his gospel was one of the great writers calling Jesus the light of the world and recording when Jesus called himself the light of the world, all of those things. But I want to unpack this for a minute because this, this impacts the way we think about everything. Okay, And so when he talks about that in him there is no darkness at all, and he sets up this juxtaposition between light and darkness. I need you to think about like two buckets, okay? We've got like two 55-gallon trash cans up here. You've got the can of light and you've got the can of darkness. And they're two different spheres in the Bible. And so when you come over here and you start to talk about light, when the Bible uses that terminology, it's pure, it's righteous, it's holy, it's good, it can be talking about God or the way that people are supposed to live. It's talking about spiritual life, spiritual blessing, prosperity. Okay, So that bucket overflows. The light bucket just overflows with good things. You come to the dark. I won't call it the dark side. But you come over to the dark. And in the dark bucket, you get things such as wickedness and impurity, immorality, evil. Things like suffering and decay and death, judgment. All of that goes into that bucket of darkness. One of the things that I did this week, because I, I want to encourage you to continue to study your Bibles on your own, is in the sermon supplement, I took several passages just from the New Testament on light and darkness, and I listed those out. challenge you to take that. Do some more study on light and darkness in the Bible. And, and here's why this is important. Theologians talk about two different antithetical worldviews, that basically the entire world sees sees the world through one of these two worldviews. I'm going to give you one set of names. There are different names that these go by. Uh, but one of the ways that they differentiate is, is they call the idea of one-ism, O-N-E-ism, one-ism, and two-ism. I know what you're thinking. Like, they're theologians. That's the best they could come up with, one-ism and two-ism. There are much bigger and deeper names. But for us, we're going to call it one-ism and two-ism. Okay. There's a guy by the name of Peter Jones, writes some good stuff. I've linked to that as well in the sermon supplement to help us to think about this. And here's where it goes. Most of the world sees things in terms of what's called one-ism. Basically, everything is essentially one, 
And we have, instead of two buckets, we have one bucket, that everything goes into one bucket instead of two buckets. All is one and shares the same essential nature, okay? That's one-ism. Two-ism is, no, 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 there's two buckets. There's light and there's darkness. There's good and there's bad. There's, there's, there's positive and there's negative, right? There's truth and there are lies, One-ism says, no, 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 one bucket, right? We've got different perspectives, sure. We've got different experiences, sure. We've got different ideas, but they all go kind of in the same one bucket. And you can see this, it pervades so many things. So so one-ism, all is one. Another way that people talk about it is called pantheism, right? God is everything and everything is God. Panantheism is a similar idea. Uh, You might know that from some proper popular movies if you love the lion king it's the circle of what the circle of life you want us that's exactly right you're a pagan one us uh, i'm a big star wars fan and we know that the what will be with us the force guys that's one ism right there right no i still love me some star wars don't get me wrong but when i watch star wars i want to be to tell my girls now that's pagan ideology and here's why they love it when i do that by the way they're like dad can we do theology tonight and watch a movie? Absolutely, ladies. That's my love language. Let's do it, right? But that's one-ism. It's avatar, right? Like th- there's this force inside of all living things, whatever. And it's there and it's everywhere. And here's, here's why this is important for you. You're kind of like, yeah, but I boycotted Disney, so I don't have to worry about any of that. No, no, no. We live in what I call a, a relativistic culture, right? Truth is relative. Morality is relative. Your rules work for you, but not for me. That's, that's, that's relativism. Subjectivism is, is a lot the, the same idea, right? Progressivism, all of the things. You say, I don't like progressivism, but you don't know why. It's because it's a form of oneism where everything goes in the same pot. There's no right or wrong, good or bad. We just have different ideas, different perspectives. You have a different opinion than I do. And it's so important for us to understand that all of that religious pluralism that's like, you believe in Jesus, I believe in something else, I believe in fairy tales, we're all going to go to the same place. That's all out of this, this worldview of oneism. The God of the Bible and John in 1 John 1, 5 says, no, that is a cultural lie. And it's interesting because in John's day, he was fighting something called proto, what we call now proto-Gnosticism. Okay? And then in the, in the ensuing centuries, this, this heresy called Gnosticism, I won't get deep into it, but, but it pervaded the church. You know we're fighting the same battles today. The same battles they fought in a pre-Christian culture are the battles that we're fighting in a post-Christian, post-truth culture. And this is the kind of stuff that it is. You wonder why people say things like, well, all truths lead to this, all, all religions lead to the same place. There's no such thing as objective truth. Because this is, this is at least two millennia old right? People have been saying this stuff for a long, long time. When you come to the Bible, he says, no, 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 there are two buckets. There's truth and there's lies. And you can either believe the truth or you can accept the lies. He says there's right and there's wrong. That there is, in fact, as we'll see, something called sin, and it, in fact, has consequences. And I tell you all that to say this, is that when God When John writes that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, he's giving us the way that the Bible wants us to view the world. That there is one God, the creator, and then there's creation. The creator is in charge. I say there's one God and I'm not him, right? That there's one God, the creator, and then there's creation. And the job of creation is to worship and serve the creator, not the other way around. So he's laying this foundation for us. And then... John, facing the same things that we would face and see today when we turn on the TV in verses 6 and following, is going to show us how people then respond to that. He's going to say, look, there's truth and there's lies. There's good and there's bad. There's light and there's darkness. If everybody got in line and was like, yep, that's right. For sure, I'm going to follow the truth and I'm going to stay away from the lies. I'm going to stay in the light and stay out of the darkness. We'd be all good. But we know that that's not the case. I want you to see how people responded in that day and think, does that look familiar at all? Look at your Bibles, because I want to point out some really cool context or some really cool structure that happens here. When these guys wrote these books, they wrote them intentionally, and there's structure in all these books of the Bible you need to see. So in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 1, he actually gives us like three uh, conditional clauses, um, and, and you're going you're gonna to see 
uh, the distinction. Verse 6, he says it like this. If we say we have fellowship. Verse 7, he says, but if we walk in light. Verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin. Verse 9, he's going to say, but if we confess our sins. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned. And then chapter 2, verse 1, which we'll get to next week. But if anyone does sin. You see there's three contrasts that are going on here. There are three lies that culture is still telling today. And there are three truths that God wants us to know from his word. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to unpack the lies first. We're going to look at the three lies. And then we'll look at two of the truths. And then next week we'll get to the final of those truths. So verse 6 is the first of those lies. Lies, things that culture, again, we see them in the Bible. You see them in our culture. The first lie is found in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, that means that we walk with the Lord, that we share in common with the Lord, that we have a relationship with the Lord. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we do what? We lie and do not practice the truth. Why, church? There are lies and there's truth. There's not one bucket that kind of everything gets dumped in. There are lies and there's truth. One of the lies that culture would want us to believe, that the enemy would want us to believe, is, is this. It's the lie of fake fellowship with God. That I can have fellowship with God and still live however I want. That goes in the bucket of oneism, right? There's no absolute moral standard. Everything's subjective. I can have what I want and live how I want, and I, and I can also at the same time say that I love and serve God. You'll notice that each of the lies is somebody saying something, isn't it? Right? Each of those lies is somebody saying something. Because that's how we lie. We claim one thing and we do a different thing. He says, if I say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Here's a, maybe a little bit of a dark illustration of what that would look like, and I think this deserves it. You can imagine what you would think if I, as your pastor, came and talked from the stage about how much I love and care about my wife, which I do. If I told her all the time how much I love her and care about her, and after 20 years of marriage, I was still taking her on dates and taking her on trips and buying her things and trying to continue to please her and make her happy. And I was over and over and over telling her how much I love her. But then it came out that for 20 years I had a secret girlfriend on the side. Right? That's dark. That's not true. But that's what it's like. That's what it's like when we say we have fellowship with God and we just continually walk in darkness. Now what that doesn't mean, he's not saying like, hey, we, you, know, you struggle with the sin, right? We've all sinned, we struggle with sin, we're trying to overcome sin, the power of the Holy Spirit, those kinds of things. To walk in darkness means that this is a continual, unrepentant, rebellious state that you're walking in. That you're telling people, you're coming to church, you're playing church, you're opening your Bible, you're maybe even serving and involved in things. We say that we have fellowship with God, but in reality, in your life, in your heart, in your mind, on your internet browser, whatever it is, that you have a completely different lifestyle, and you're perfectly okay with that, right? You're playing the game. And he says, if we say that we have fellowship with God, we lie and do not practice the truth. I want you to know that the truth is something you do, not just something that you say. Okay? The truth is something that you do, not just what you say. Each of these lies start with somebody saying something. And he says we do not practice the truth, live out the truth. And as Christians, sometimes we can think that truth is this body of knowledge that fills our head. We create what I call Christian bobblehead dolls, really big heads, really small legs, right? Lots of knowledge, no action. And that's not what God has called us to. The truth is something that we practice. Lie number one, fake fellowship with God. Verse eight gives us lie number two. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You'll notice that verse eight and verse 10 seem to say pretty close to the same thing, but they're actually in, important, in an important way different. Verse eight says, if we say we have no sin, the lie here is a denial of what is called the sin nature. This is something that you need to know about and hear about and understand. We believe, I believe in something called total depravity, okay? I believe that man, God, God's word teaches that, that man is a sinner by nature and by choice. It's been said this way, um, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. That makes, you see the difference? 
We're not sinners because we do acts of sin, and then God's like, ah, sinner. Right, no. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, you don't have to turn there. Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death spread through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And it goes on to talk about how we inherited a sin nature. That means before I ever made the first choice to sin, that I had a sin nature. And what this text is saying is the same thing that culture says today. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You know what that lie looks like today? You know what that we deceive ourselves looks like today? You ever heard somebody say, well, people are basically good. You ever heard that one? Like, people are basically good, right? If you put them in the right environment, I know that kids are holy terror, but if you put them in the right environment, they'd be fine. The kid's not the problem, it's the parents, right? Yeah, the cultural lie and the cultural answer to, like, I'm a sinner by nature and choice, because, man, that's just ugly, isn't it? Like, that's not fun. Our church is going to shrink, it's not going to grow, people are going to leave unhappy, that's going to be sad. I come and I say, like, Scripture says you're a sinner by nature and choice. People aren't like, yeah, woohoo, right? But if I came and I said, you know what, people are basically good. Your problem is your environment. You just need to, you need to change your environment, right? We rationalize, we compare, we blame stuff. You know what one of our favorite things to do as people? Play the victim right? I don't have a sin nature. I'm a victim to X, Y, Z, right? That doesn't mean that bad things don't happen to us. Bad things happen to people. But at the same time, you guys, we have to own the fact that God in scripture has said, Romans chapter three, right? There's no one righteous, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. That's kind of clear, isn't it? Like no one, no one, no one. That includes, you're like, but I'm an exception. No, no one. And here's the thing. I'm giving you the bad news up front so that I can end with the good news. There's really good news at the end. Really good news at the end of this sermon. So just hang on, I promise, a really good news. But part of understanding the good news is we've got to understand the bad news. And so verse 8 gives us the lie that, like, you know, like people are basically good. It's basically okay. We don't really have sin natures. Then verse 10 takes it a little bit further, and the lie is that we, we can deny our sinful actions. Not only I'm not a sinner by nature, but I don't actually sin by choice. Right? He says this. If we say we have not sinned, right? I'm not, I've not sinned. We make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, the first service assured me, but I'm not sure how you guys fare today. They assured me that if I asked for a raise of hands, how many of you have ever sinned? They said that they would all raise their hands. Right? There was one guy that was kind of not sure. But I am sure with a theologically astute crowd such as this, right? Like, and the truth is, it's probably if you just like stumbled in here because it was cold and you're not really a church person or you're watching online today, probably most of us would be like, yeah, I, th- I think I've sinned. But I don't know if you knew this. Sin is kind of taboo in our culture. Like to call stuff sin. Did you know that? Like it, it can kind of be like a taboo. So we don't have sin. You know what we have? We have diseases, right? That's not a sin. It's a disease. That's not a sin. It's a, a, it's a disorder. That's not a sin. That's just a bunch of bad habits, right? That's not a sin. It's my personality. That's not a sin. It's my nationality, right? And I don't get this because every nationality on earth gets blamed for it. Somebody can be from like any continent on earth. It's like, you know what? I'm Asian, so that's my problem. You know what? I'm American, so I'm, obviously I'm a jerk. You know what? I'm from Europe, so I'm angry all the time. It's like, what? where's the good place? I don't know. Hawaii? Maybe. <laughs> and he's not even Hawaiian. Eh. <laughs> yeah, and so what we do, you guys, is we minimize sin, we redefine sin, we excuse sin, right? We call it a disease. We call it, and, and if it's a disease, you know what I need? I need a medication. I don't need Jesus, right? Are, are there places where we need medication for, for mental health things? Yes, I'm not here to deny that, okay? But what I am saying is that I don't just have a disease, right? That there's sin that's involved, and I need to take responsibility for the sin. But the lie that goes in the big bucket of one-ism is, you know what? It's not really sin. It's just a personal choice. It's not really sin. It's just a bad habit. I'll I'll, uh, quote a a source that some of you are going to like maybe a little bit too much. This is called the Official 
politically correct dictionary and handbook. Grab your Amazon. It's a satire. Now, I haven't read the whole thing, okay? So if you look at it and it's like sketchy, don't blame the pastor. <laughs> I probably should have. But here are a couple things that it said that I thought are interesting because they're making fun of how culture views things like sin, right? It said this. It said, someone's not lazy. You don't, people aren't lazy. What they are is motivationally dispossessed. Oh, yeah, okay. That makes sense, right? Someone's not a thief. They're a cost-of-living adjustment specialist. Oh, okay. And the other one that I probably shouldn't share, but I will anyway, is is, is if a woman or a man sell their body for sex, they're not a prostitute, they're an intimacy care provider, right? It just shows you, it shows you the depths to which people go to redefine sin and to excuse sin and to say that sin is not sin. But you know what the Bible says? So if oneism says we can do all that stuff with sin, the Bible says sin is sin. This side got it right. Let's give you a shot. Sin is there you go. Sin is sin. You know what that means? We deal with sin as sin. We don't deal with sin. We, we don't deal with sin as just a disease, as I'm just a victim. We don't deal with sin as it's just a, a systemic problem that we need you know, more money to fix. We deal with sin as sin. And some of us think, like, oh, I know what sin is, right? Sin is when I'm driving down the road, that guy cuts me off, and then I give him the finger. Some of you are like, that's not really sin, he deserved it. Some of us think that sin is just like the stuff that your kids do when they get on your nerves. So let me make sure that we all feel convicted collectively today. Sin is thought, word, motive, action. Thought, word, motive, action. It doesn't start when you act on it, right? Scripture's clear. It starts in your thoughts. So I can look completely sin-free. I can look like just really moral and healthy and really great. But my thoughts can be a total wreck, right? My mind can be angry and lustful and all of those things, covetous. And I can come to church and know all the verses. Our words. Man, some of us have never hit another person. But we have inflicted more damage with our words than we ever would with our fists. And I say that as a person who has struggled with words, right? But we need to identify that as sin so that God can help us to deal with that sin properly. If I'm never willing to say, you know what? Like, my words are not just a bad habit. My words are not just my personality. My words and the way that I'm using those words are sin. It can be manipulation. It can be sarcasm. It can be anger. If I'm not willing to say, call sin, sin then how do I let God work on my heart with that thing being sin? You see the problem? If I'm just a victim and everybody else is the reason that I do this, then I'm not going to go to God and ask Him to work on my heart and my sin. Your motives, why we do the things we do. We all know we can do really good things for really bad reasons, right? Sin can come in motives. And then obviously our actions. Most of you have probably heard this, but there, there are sins of commission, which are the things, sins that we commit, right? Things that we shouldn't do that we do. We won't make a list. But the things that we shouldn't do that we do. There's also sins of omission, the things that we should do that we don't do. And those get really tricky for lots of us who spend a lot of time in church. But we need to see all of that as sin. I would mention this as well. This is by way of warning as a pastor, as a shepherd, because I love you. I don't know who comes in here on a weekly basis. I don't know even especially who's going to watch online and where else they're going to go. But there is a drift in modern churches, liberal churches, what I would call apostate churches especially, but in many uh, churches who, who I think are focusing more on, again, on people than they are on pointing people to God. There's a drift away from calling sin, sin. And here's the problem with that. If you go to a church and it's not willing to call sin, sin, if I, if I don't have sin, then I don't need the atonement. I don't need the gospel of Jesus. I'm, some of Jesus' teachings might be nice. Jesus' example might be nice. But unless I call sin, sin, then why do I need the atonement? Why do I need the gospel of Jesus? Why do I need to know that Jesus died in my place for my sins? And you can go to church and have your problem addressed and walk out of church and feel pretty good about yourself and have never trusted Jesus. And that's a real problem. You can go out and, and, and learn how to control your words, control your actions, and have never been confronted with the gospel of Jesus. 
That's why verses 7 and 9 and chapter 2, verse 1, which we'll get to next week, are so vitally important because they give us the truth. Those lies were the lies. The way that people were dealing with and looking at sin in John's day, which are very much like they're looking at sin today. And here's what John says about the truth in verse 7. 1 John 1, 7, follow along with me. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light is keeping God's commandments. And even more than keeping God's commandments, it's walking in relationship and fellowship with God. Doing the journey of life, allowing God to guide you. Walking with Him as your friend, as your loving Heavenly Father. I want my daughters to, to keep my commands, but I want them to keep those commands in a relationship of, of love, right? Not because I de demand or command or make them or force them or I'm going to take away your phone if you don't. But at the end of the day, I want them to do it because they know that Dad loves them and cares about them is there with them. And when they mess up, I'm there with them. And when they're walking great, we're there together. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with each other. And I find that interesting because He said if we claim to have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness, we lie. But then in this verse, He says, conversely, that if we walk in the light, we walk in relationship with God, then guess what we're going to have with each other as Christians? Fellowship with each other. Some of us don't walk in fellowship with each other because we're not walking in fellowship with God, right? I don't believe that somebody can live in constant, continuous, unrepentant sin and have the relationship that they need and should have with God. And here's the deal, by the way. One of the reasons that we push relationship here at the church and, and community and being involved in something smaller than Sunday, being in a small group or a Bible study or connecting with other people, part of the reason is because that's how we walk in the light. We walk in the light together that Christians need each other. And I believe that when people are really reticent to ever come into relationship with other Christians, there's a decent chance that it's because they're in fact walking in darkness. They may be saying, as we saw in verse 6, that they have fellowship with God, but it shows something about us. We're not ever willing to be together with other Christians. Walk in the light. And he says these words at the end of verse 7. The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. You can't walk in the light without the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Walking in the light is not a choice that you make to pull yourself into the light. Walking in the light is not something that you just do good actions and suddenly you're in the light. Walking in the light here is, is the same as to, to become a Christian. That I admit that I'm a sinner. That I confess, as we'll see in a moment, my sins to God. That I admit that I'm a sinner. And that I trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. He says, then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And that will then take us, we'll talk more about that next week. We'll really unpack that next week. But 1 John 1.9 is the verse that we'll close with today. How many of you have memorized this verse? 1 John 1.9. You know it, right? Some of you, I'm going to start reading it, and then your hand's going to go up. Oh, yeah, I knew that one. I didn't know the address, but I knew it. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I have to admit, there's enough here for multiple sermons in one verse. Let me point a few things out to you because this is all the good news. All the bad news that we talked about a few minutes ago and that we've talked about for a little while about sin and consequences and all those things. All the good news is wrapped up in 1 John 1, 9. Confess. Here's what confess means. To confess simply means this, to agree with. When it says to confess, it means I agree with God about my sin. What does God call sin, church? It's a three-letter word. It's real short. What does God call sin? Sin! Hey, 100%. You're nailing it, right? God doesn't call sin a disease. God doesn't call sin, a, you know, just a, a personality conflict. God calls sin, sin. So when I confess my sins, you know what I'm doing? I'm agreeing with God. Yep, God, you're right. It's actually sin. It wasn't, you know, the devil made me do it. It wasn't my wife made me do it. It wasn't my upbringing, my environment, my background. Sin is sin. 
I confess, I agree with God about my sin. And you know what that does? One of the things that confessing does is it breaks sin's stronghold. When I name it, when I say, God, I confess my sins, like it breaks sin's stronghold. The answer to all of that denial that we were talking about earlier, like we lie and we say we're not sinful by nature, we're not sinful by choice, we're, the answer to all of that denial is confession. Confession. Confession here is a continuous action, by the way. Right? It's a continuous action. And here's uh, what I want to say as well about this. I, this is something that's not in the notes, but again, in the first service, I just God kind of impressed it on my heart, and so I want to say that. Churches have gotten weird in the past with confession, okay? There are those churches where you go into the little booth and there's a little thing and then I'm sitting on the other side. We do not do that here. Thank you, Jesus. We believe in the priesthood of the believer, not in the priesthood of the pastor. So that means you can confess your sins directly to God. But one of the things that has happened in churches, and especially like some maybe more legalistic churches through the years, is that confession has kind of gone a little bit askew. And what's happened is somebody has committed a sin in private, and then they've dragged them before the church and stood them in front of everybody and shamed them and guilted them and made them feel evil and awful and terrible and told them that they have to confess in front of everybody. And then all the judges sit out there, and the defendant stands here, they're proclaimed guilty, and they leave and they feel guilty for the rest of their life. That is a skewed understanding of confession, church. Some of us grew up in those churches. Some of us, when the word confession comes up, you, like me, were told that, hey, you know what could happen? God could come back at any time. And God's got a big screen. And he's going to put on that big screen all your unconfessed sin, all the thoughts that you thought you didn't confess, all the deeds. I'm over there as a teenager, like, freaking out. This could actually happen? No! And what those were were bully tactics by people who hadn't read the Bible properly. When it says we confess our sins, confession is key. It's vital. It says sins, not sin, right? So one of the things that people like to do is like, I better confess my sin. So they get out a different big barrel than we've been talking about. They get that barrel out. They just dump everything in there. They don't name any of it, right? They just, oh, I'm pretty sure I've done a bunch of bad stuff. They seal it up. They duct tape it. And then they just kick it down the aisle toward God. And they haven't named any of their sins, claimed any of their sins, held accountable for any of their sins. They're like, I put it in the bucket. I don't really know what I threw in there. Neither does anybody else. That's also not confession. When he says we confess our sins, he's saying that we name those things, that we know what's between us and God. We know what's in the darkness that needs to be brought into the light. I was taught as a young man as well that one of the things you need to go do is go sin hunting, right? You're like, you might not be able to think of any, but think real hard, and you'll probably come up with some, right? And if you can't think of any, you're not trying hard enough, but you need to get a big list of sin, and you need to go rooting, really rooting things out and finding out if it's there. And people, like, make up stuff and feel guilty about stuff that they had never actually done because they were told so much you have to confess all these sins. And the people with the really long list of sins, man, those are the ones that God really loves, right? No. Like, all kinds of crazy views of confession. But he says when we confess, that means I agree with God about my sins. In confession, here's what happens. In confession, number one, I own what is wrong. Okay, I own what is wrong. That's different than playing the victim. That's different than denying. That's different. I own what is wrong. And by what is wrong, I mean the specifics. It's not, Lord, you know, I've really had some struggles. God, I have an unspoken prayer request. You know what it is, and so do I. No, God, I have an anger problem. God, you know that I have the lust problem. God, you know that I have whatever it is. I'm coveting. We just, did you know that God knew it already? Did you know confession isn't like God up there, oh, wow, I had no idea. Let me get out a notepad. Like, that's not what's going on. So stop freaking out about telling him things he already knows about. If we confess our sins. So number one confession is that I own what is wrong, and then I own who is responsible. Okay? That's really important. I own what's wrong, and I own who's responsible. And again, I keep pushing on it, but because we have such a culture of pushing everything away, and, and everybody else take the blame, we need to hear, 
I need to be on my knees repenting before God, confessing my sins and say, God, I own what is wrong. This is me. This is the thing. This is why it's wrong. I know it breaks your heart and it breaks your will. And I'm to blame. If we confess our sin, he's what? Faithful and just. The confession part is scary. But I need you to know that when you confess, you confess to a faithful and just God. That God is faithful in doing what he says that he will do. He is just in doing what he says that he will do. He is faithful and just. He will forgive us of our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Both of these are important, and we're coming right down to the end here, and I want you to hear this because both of these are important for all of us. He will forgive us of our sins. Forgiveness is when God takes away the guilt, God takes away the the penalty, okay? When it says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us, again, we'll talk about that more next week, that forgiveness takes away the penalty, The Apostle Paul uses a different word. It's called justification, and it's a legal term, which means that you were declared guilty, now you're declared not guilty. That because of the blood of Jesus Christ, and you're placing your faith in Jesus, that you're now declared not guilty. That's the forgiveness piece. So some of you need to hear, you've been forgiven, okay? And if God has forgiven you, guess what that means? You can forgive yourself, right? But sometimes we don't... We don't grasp God's forgiveness, and you're like, but, but God doesn't know all the stuff that I've done. Yes, he does. And the verse is still there. The truth is still there. It doesn't say in there, like, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just, forgive you of your sins, and cleanse you for all unrighteousness, unless you just, this really, these really bad things, right? He will forgive you of your sins. But then there's another piece to it that is just incredible. And so hard for so many of us to get a hold of. It says that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness is about the penalty. Cleansing is about the stain. One of the things about sin is that sin leaves nasty stains, right? You sin, you do things, and then you deal with the consequences, and there's these nasty stains. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness means that he deals with the stain. This past week, I got a stain on my shirt. And I wasn't happy because I liked the shirt. So I took off the shirt, and I did what all good men do. I gave it to my wife. I said, babe, help. She gets this magic spray. She sprays it on the stain, puts the stain in the washing machine, does some things I've never seen before, and the washing machine starts going. It's like, that's really cool. I took this shirt out. Guess what? Stain is gone, right? You know what I didn't have to do when I put the shirt back on? I didn't have to be like, Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I got a stain on my shirt. Oh, this is so, people are going to judge me. Oh, my shirt is so stained. No, you know what I could do with pride? It wasn't a Superman shirt. I don't know why I did that. But with pride, I could wear that shirt. Because why? Because the stain was gone. Some of us have accepted God's forgiveness of our sins. We're like, yep, penalty paid, get it, going to heaven, really cool. But we're still walking around like this. We're still walking around with the guilt and the shame. Listen, sin has consequences. Yes, absolutely, 100%. I read something this week. It said that that all sin is equally wrong, but all sin is not equally bad. I thought that's really interesting, right? Equally wrong, but not equally bad. We would say all sin is equally against God, but you know what? The consequences are different for different sins. I get that. But, but, But it's not supposed to involve shame. And it's not supposed to involve guilt. Yes, it involves consequences. But God doesn't want you to live in shame. God doesn't want you walking around like this with that thing that that you did. With that thing that was done to you. When it says he's faithful and just and he will forgive us of our sins, penalty paid, guilt taken away, you're now not guilty, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And some of us, man, that's where we need to camp. He uses that word cleanse twice in these verses. Some of you need that freedom. You see, all of this today is about freedom. All of this is about when I admit that God is who God is and that I am who Scripture says that I am and I confess my sins to God, guys, that doesn't lead to a sledgehammer. That leads to freedom in Christ. That's the good news. That for all these people that are denying their sin and saying there's no such thing as sin and all of that stuff that's going on, 
for all of the people who live in that barrel of oneism, you guys, I could talk about this forever, I won't, but for all the people that live with that worldview, it ends in hopelessness. For all of us who are willing to say there is one God and I'm not Him, there is light and there is darkness, and confess our sins to God, there is freedom. So all of us know where we're at with God. Maybe you're not a Christian. I'd love to invite you to become a Christian today. Take it to the Father. God, I'm a sinner by nature and choice, and I trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. That means you're walking in the light. That means you've become a Christian. If you've never become a Christian, man, become a Christian today. If you're walking and you've got something in there, you know that it needs to be confessed, I want you to have the freedom that confession brings today. And if you're carrying something around, and it's guilt and it's shame and any of that stuff, and you're like afraid, I want you to rest with the freedom and the assurance that you have been cleansed from all unrighteousness. The big idea of the sermon, you've been staring at it all morning, God is light, live like it. God is light, we can live like it. As I close, there's a song, we're not going to sing it, I just want to read you a couple lyrics to close today, and then actually after I pray and we're dismissed, it's going to play overhead, but uh, Melissa Christie sang this song for Easter, if you guys were here, we're going to actually sing it again in a few weeks, it's called Thank You Jesus for the Blood. Listen to these lyrics, the chorus, thank you Jesus for the blood applied, thank you Jesus, it has washed me white, thank you Jesus, you have saved my life brought me out of darkness and into glorious light. 1 John 1, 5 through 10, you guys. Like, that's what we have to celebrate. I want you to stand with me this morning. I'm going to pray. Let me give you, as I'm praying out loud, an opportunity. You know what God needs to hear from you. And so I would challenge you, as I'm praying out loud, talk to God. Whatever it is that you think that that He needs to hear from you, talk to God. If we can be of help, like, you know, in, in helping you walk through, work through things, We'd love to do that as well. Get in touch with us. Uh, we'd love to do that. But I'm going to pray, and you do business with God. And then again, as we're on the way out, that song's going to play overhead. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it proclaims. Thank you that you are the light. God, you are morally pure and holy and perfect. And when I look at that and I see myself up against it, man, it feels hopeless. But I thank you for the hope and the strength and the power that these verses have for us. God, I pray for the person who's here who's not accepted Christ as their Savior. God, that you would would drag them into relationship with you. That you would draw them to yourself. That they would experience what it looks like to walk in light and confession of sin. God, for the person who's here who maybe who, who knows and is convicted right now that they've just been playing church and they're really walking in darkness. God, would you convict them and also give them the courage um, and, and the encouragement to know that it's better in the light. God, for those of us who tend to minimize our sins, who tend to try to explain away our sins, who try to pretend like it's really no big deal, God, convict us this morning. Convict us of our sins and lead us to confession. And God, for that person who's here who's maybe been walking in guilt and shame, God, would you just give them freedom this morning in hearing from your word that they have been cleansed. God, we thank you that you love us, that you gave your one and only son to die for our sins. We're thankful every week that we can come in here and celebrate and learn about you. We're thankful for the blood of Jesus, and we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.